server infrastructure traditionally consists of monolithic servers containing all of the necessary hardware to run a computer. These different hardware components are located next to each other and do not need to communicate over a network boundary to connect the CPU and memory. LEGO OS is a model for disaggregated, network-attached hardware. LEGO OS disseminates the traditional operating system functionalities into loosely coupled hardware and software components. By disaggregating the data center infrastructure, the overall resource usage and failure rate of server infrastructure can be improved. Yiying Zhang is an assistant professor of computer science at UCSD. Her research focuses on operating systems, distributed systems, and data center networking. She joins the show to discuss her work and its implications for data centers and infrastructure. If you have an idea for a show, you can write about it on softwaredaily.com. We are always looking for new show ideas, and you can also post about your company. You can post about the projects that you're working on. You can post jobs that are related to those companies or projects, and we're going to look for the best ideas, and we want to cover things that are interesting, as well as share the job postings that people post that are particularly useful to the audience. So you can check all that out at softwaredaily.com. Thanks for listening. Ying Zhang, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. You're an assistant professor at UCSD, and a specific focus of yours is the idea of breaking up monolithic, tightly coupled server infrastructure. Can you explain how server infrastructure is monolithic? What does that mean? So it means the servers that I use currently in data centers are no, fundamentally, there's no difference from like a personal computer. In a computer, you have everything that is needed for your computation. That usually includes a CPU, some memory, some storage device like a disk, and then there's a network card that connects to the outside. So everything is bundled on a motherboard and that's packaged into a server. So that's what I mean by a monolithic server model. What would be the alternative to that? So the alternative is to break these devices apart. And you no longer have a server. There's no motherboards. Every device just directly connects to the network. Like your CPU directly connects to the network. And then the memory directly connects to network. Storage directly connects to network. When we talk about the... CPU, for example, being connected to the network versus uh, connected directly to the other components, what exactly does that mean? If, if you have these different components that are communicating with each other in the classic monolithic server model, how does that compare to a model in which everything is going over a network? So a classic model, what you can access before you go to network it's just what, what is in the local server. Like CPU has can talk to the local server's memory, can talk to the local server's storage over the motherboard. But you cannot, to talk to like other machines, memory, storage, you have to go across network. And then all the software, they are built in a way that it assumes like all the resource is local before you go to distribute it. So that's the traditional way. And if you break them apart, 
then there's no notion of what is local and what is remote. So to the CPU, if it directly connects, everything's directly connects to the same network. So like CPU can access any memory device in the same way. So there's no notion of like, I'm accessing the memory that's local through the motherboard, or I'm accessing another machine through the general network. So everything would just be like going through the whole general purpose network. And, and the benefit of doing that is like, you get to allocate a resource anywhere that is available. So imagine if you have like a, a thousand memory devices connected to the network, a thousand CPU processors connected to the network. When you're running an application, your code can be executing on one of the CPU, and then the memory could be, some of the memory could be on memory one, some could be on memory 100, some can be on memory 1000. And there's no, like, like conceptually, there's no difference of how you access these different memory, and then suddenly you can access a lot more of them. Obviously, that sounds advantageous. If I can just have this disaggregated computer, then I could easily bolt on new memory modules and new CPUs or TPUs. I could, I mean, the, the, the work that you've done is Lego OS, and you can imagine just these Lego building blocks fitting together more harmoniously than a monolithic system. I'd really like to get a better understanding of what that means as far as the connectivity, because the monolithic model, I can imagine there are advantages to this direct connection. I don't know much about hardware interfaces or the, the interfaces between these different components and how that compares to what you get if you network all these things together. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, that's a very good question. So what I described is more like a, a future vision where everything could connect to the same network and we can zoom, you can have the same performance to whenever you access um, any component in this network. But that's very different from today's world where you have a local motherboard, local bus that is much faster than the general purpose network that connects different machines, different servers. And also the interface would be different. So this definitely would be a lot of uh, changes before we can reach that vision. But the good news is that like data center networks, they are becoming much, much, uh, much faster these days. And they are improving at a rate that is faster than CPU. So the frequency of network in data center, they increase much faster than CPU frequency which means at some point we'll have um, the network being fast enough that, so that like you don't, you don't really have to care where, what's the other end that you're talking to. So it's always going through the same very fast network. But there's obviously a lot of problems that need to be solved. And maybe we will not get to that vision and maybe there will still be some hierarchy. So the current model is you have a hierarchy of basically network. You can think of like local bus as the fastest network, but you only get a very small scale. You can only access what's local in your server. And then the next level would be like a rack, which is slower than your motherboard, but still quite fast. And you get to like a like hundred, like some tens of machines. And then the next level would be slower, you get to more machines. There's some hierarchy in, in the network if we want to access a lot. So this hierarchy may still exist, but like in general, 
the network speed is improving much faster than the local bus speed and the uh, CPU frequency. And that's why at some point, we would be able to both have good performance and have a reasonable amount of uh, scalability. And the the model that you're suggesting, this disaggregated server infrastructure, we had a show recently with AWS, and they have these Nitro security chips. They have these dedicated I.O. chips. It seems like they're doing work that is is related to this. I mean, so they're, what they are doing, as I understand, is they're making custom ASICs that that dedicate a hardware device to fulfilling certain operations or certain classes of operations. How does that relate to what you're proposing? So I think their model is like you will, uh, there's a need and the need comes from uh, like CPU not scaling and Moore's law, they're slowing down. And that's why people are looking at other other type of uh, processors, other type of hardware. And once you do that, you have a lot of heterogeneous types of hardware. And the traditional servers, they're really designed for not, they're not really designed for handling heterogeneous hardware. So they were designed for like a CPU, a memory, a storage, like a standard server architecture. Once you get, have more like heterogeneity, then you need to think about how to connect these heterogeneous devices. Should we still use the standard motherboard? And the other thing is you may have the need to um, like add and remove devices. So if we are still like having the traditional server model, then uh, the problem, I think this is also a problem that real data centers face is that they have the need to add new hardware, new types of hardware. But before that, they have to first think, oh, do I have enough PCIe slots in my server? Like, would this bus standard work with this new hardware? And as this need becomes like more and more pressing, I think it's a time to rethink how we connect these different devices and think about a way that's more flexible. So if every, everything could have like a standard way of connecting to network, and when you want to add, you don't need to think about if I have a slot in my in my server, you just add them to the general network and, and then it can just go. But of course, you need a lot of software support, network support to make this happen. But I think this the whole idea of disaggregation also fits this uh, general trend of having more heterogeneous hardware devices. The way that things are done today is... If I have an application that needs to scale, I can just create these different components in a cloud provider. Like I can spin up a dedicated instance for my machine learning. That instance, maybe it has a TPU, a tensor processing unit on it. If I need uh, a bunch of different instances of microservices, then I spin up another certain kind of instance for those different microservices. If I need a, a caching server, maybe I spin up a instance of a computer that has a lot of memory on it, and this works pretty well. Why is there anything wrong with this model of the current way of pooling resources and distributing resources and allocating resources? 
So I think this can be answered from two sides. So the first side is from the cloud provider's view. So for the cloud providers, they have to allocate resources for a virtual machine for a container. And the current way, you have to run a virtual machine or container inside one server. Like a virtual machine, you cannot like span them across multiple servers. And what could end up happening is that you have like some machine that has used all of its CPU, but still have a lot of memory left. And another machine has all its memory occupied, but still have CPU cores left. And because you have to allocate, run a virtual machine or a container on the same machine, like the first, first machine's memory and the second machine's CPU cores, they are wasted. And because of this, data center, they are actually seeing not very good CPU and memory utilization. And if you could improve a resource utilization by even like 1%, it's, it means like, I don't know how, how, many, how many dollars, but definitely a lot of money for cloud providers. So in the disaggregated view, there's no such waste because you can, application basically runs on a distributed set of, uh, set of hardware devices and it can have memory from any device. It can run your, your like threads on any CPU cores and there won't be this like waste of resource. So that's from cloud provider's view. So from, I would say like from like the cloud user's view, one trend is at least certain amount of cloud users, they would want to move to this, what, what people call serverless model, where you don't need to care about clusters, you don't need to care about servers. You just run a program, you have some data, and you leave it, all the rest, to the cloud providers. So for this type of customers, they don't really want to care, they don't want to manage like where exactly their software is running. Is it running on CPU? Is it running this memory or on that GPU? So I would say for this type of trend, it would be more, more beneficial if we could have like a disaggregated architecture and then the cloud provider will decide what to allocate for this serverless function. And when you talk to cloud providers or people from cloud providers about this idea, what's their response? So I've talked to several and then, so in general, the current status is almost all the cloud major data centers, they're already disaggregating storage. So that's quite standard already. Like Facebook has a separate storage pool, a separate memcached pool, and Amazon has separate e, uh, EBS, like, like S3. And then it's same for uh, Alibaba. So they also have like a disaggregated storage. So storage is considered quite standard to be disaggregated. And then recently, certain data centers, they are thinking about going like one step further into disaggregating persistent memory, non-volatile memory, like Intel Optane, or even disaggregating memory. But one of the major concern, probably I wouldn't say from which major company, but it's a major data center cloud provider, is the failure model of disaggregated memory. Because now it makes the whole failure handling more complex. If one memory fail, this memory device, it could store memory content for different applications that are running on different CPU processes. 
So how do you deal with this failure, failure scenario? And if dealing with failure means that you need to add, use more memory, then it basically defeats the original, one of the original main purpose. That is you could, by tight, uh, tightening the resource packing, you have better resource utilization. But if you end up like using more memory just to provide this reliability guarantees, then cost-wise, it basically offset the cost benefit of your original idea. So that is one of the major fight back of this, this whole idea, I think. Could you talk about that in, in more detail? That what are the the trade-offs in that what you just described? Like I, I I'm not sure I fully understood what you were articulating. So like the original one of the main benefits of disaggregating resources is that you can allocate resource from any component. So you will have least amount of waste. So currently data centers, they have like almost 50% of the memory they are not used, even when there's, they are waiting jobs. And that, that is the scenario I described to you. So if we could disaggregate, then ideally we could improve this to close to 100%. So that means like close to 2x improvement in resource utilization. And if it's 2x improvement, it means 50% cost cut. And then the problem is if we want reliability, usually the easiest way to do that is through uh, replication. So if you keep 2x replication of your memory content, that means you need 2x the memory space. And that offset the 50% cost that you actually bought with this idea. So we definitely, this is a new, this failure issue is a new problem. So I don't think it's unsolvable, but it's definitely a hard problem. And so there have actually have already been some recent research work in reducing this to less than 2x and some other ways. So if you could reduce it to less than 2x and then your benefit is like 2x, then overall you are still having cost saving besides the other benefits that I talked about. So are you saying that if you disaggregate, then your memory constraints are the memory that you have to waste in order to get reliability is going to be less? So first, let's say we don't provide any reliability just by disaggregating. Optimally, you could improve resource utilization by 2x. So the current is around 50, 60% utilization and we could improve it to 90, 100% utilization. So that is without replication. So the current servers, they don't replicate memory. And when we disaggregate, let's say if we don't replicate memory, so that's the cost saving that you are going to get, the like resource utilization improvement that you're going to get. But the problem is we are making failure handling more complex because now like your program is scattered around uh, many device, many devices. Any of them, if they fail, they could uh, affect your program, your application. And to deal with that, the easiest way is to always have a replica. And having a replica means you are doubling the space usage. So that's one of the downside. But like this is just the easiest way of dealing with with uh, failure failures, and it's almost like too much that you need to do. So that's like the upper bound. So with 
better ideas, better designs, it could be less than 2x. So you're saying that you could, like, how would you replicate something without having 2x the memory utilization? I mean, if I if I spin up some microservice on container A and I want to have I want to have that service replicated or, or a database, you know, the same thing, the caching server, whatever, how could I avoid having 2x? So this has actually already been done. So 2x is exact copy. You don't need 2x to prevent one failure. And this idea um, has been already applied to storage, like Microsoft Azure, and that's called erasure coding. So erasure coding is like a coding theory that you could use like X plus X plus K copies, like not copies, X, X plus K units to store data that is X. So the extra K is like some extra information and K is less than X. So X plus K is less than 2X. But with smart coding theory, like XOR or some other coding theory, then you could go down to um, like one point, one point something and uh, still be able to handle one or multiple device failure. And so traditionally, this has been applied to storage because storage, you also need to like handle failure and Microsoft and other companies, they want to save costs. So they don't want to go to 2X. So that's why they are using this, co this coding, erasure coding the uh, theory. But the problem of that is it's usually like there's some software overhead to calculate these codes. And if you want to apply that to memory, which is very fast, you need another way. So there are like other research groups solving this problem. The kinds of erasure coding that you're describing, is that like kind of like what RAID store is? Yeah, is? yeah. yeah it's, it's more complex than RAID 5, RAID 6, but you can think of it as that. So like 2X is the simplest, that's RAID 1. But if you go to like RAID 5, RAID 6, you get like less than 2X. Cool. So you're saying to get that at memory speed, is more difficult there's more constraints like because i think with raid if there's a failure there's some isn't there some time to that it takes to reconstruct everything and maybe that's not permissible with a memory system it's more like the runtime overhead so you need cpu cycles to calculate these codes so this software overhead to just calculating these extra bits they are tolerable uh, in storage because storage is slow. But now if you're talking about memory speed, this could be significant. And you need that for every read and write if you want to use real recording. So there, this is not the only way to solve this reliability problem. But that's like one of the problems that some of the researchers there are currently solving. Okay, let's take a step back. So if we're trying to... You're laying out a world of disaggregated server infrastructure. And what I wonder is, you know, since you're coming at it from the research perspective, do you see this as like a thought experiment that you're doing? Or are you trying to lay out a vision for actual, a new, actual new kind of server infrastructure that you'd like to put into practice and you'd like to build servers around this and see this actually come to production? Yeah, that's a very good question. So first, like uh, my philosophy of doing research is we should always build real systems 
and that's what my group is proud of. But the original research idea, we usually try to take a more visionary idea that try to push things like stretch to some stretching um, idea. And the vision is what I talked about, like everything is cleanly, completely separated. You have processes directly connecting to network, memory directly connecting to network. So that is a very nice vision, but we need to think about how data centers could actually deploy this idea. And the problem of that is data centers, they already have like millions of uh, servers inside. You cannot tell them to just throw them all away. So that's, that's like, a, like a practical problem, but we don't have to. So the second version that we are currently working on is to think about how to practically deploy this idea with today's data center. So don't wait for the future data. Future data, maybe it will become our vision, maybe it won't, won't. But current data centers, they already have the need. The biggest need is they basically just need more memory to run their, run, run their application. Because if you look at all these big data, machine learning, uh, deep learning applications, they do need a lot more memory. So that's like one of the starting angle that we, we are currently working on to be able to incorporate this disaggregated idea into today's data centers. So not like changing the service, but having like another layer that adds on. So like, let's say mm -hmm. if we want to add disaggregated memory, then we just connect this disaggregated memory to the network and then that service. So the service would more be more like compute focused and they could now access this disaggregated memory layer through a general purpose network. And we are actually building real, we actually are close to finishing building real hardware for this uh, disaggregated memory layer. That's interesting. We had a, a sh another show fairly recently. There's a project called Cloudburst out of Berkeley, I think. And I don't know if you, you saw that paper, but the premise is, well, I guess the question he was approaching in his research is, how do we get to stateful functions as a service? How do we have stateful serverless functions? And his answer is is basically just give a big shared memory cluster to all the different serverless functions. You know, pretty pretty straightforward. You're talking about implementing some kind of shared memory system in in server infrastructure. You're also talking about you're interested in serverless functions. Can you just tell me more about what you're talking about there with the kind of shared memory component that you're exploring? Yeah, so that's a very good angle. And that that is exactly one of the major usage scenario we think our disaggregated memory could be used for. And I'm aware of the serverless and cloudburst work. So like you can view this um, this added memory, you can view like adding like a bunch of uh, memory into a, like a memory pool and you can use it for many things. So first is you could just like use, if you are running out of memory, you could allocate more memory from this pool. And we are providing it in a very fast way. And then the second way to use it is to use it more like a sharing and a state, sharing and a state storage area, a fast one that would allow different compute servers to save shared state and to communicate. So that's a second, very common usage that we envision our disaggregated memory pool would be. 
And the nice thing is like by just managing. So one of the major benefits that data centers they like about the idea of disaggregation, besides all the utilization, besides all the like conceptual, like this uh, beautiful conceptual view is its manageability. So if you're managing things separately, you could basically upgrade your memory service. You could uh, uh, like add more memory, re uh, like remove more memory. So like all the managing this pool can be completely separated from managing compute pool, from managing storage pool. So data centers and clouds, they are seeing real benefit in the storage side by actually managing disaggregated storage separately. So when they are changing their storage pool, it's not affecting the compute pool at all. So this is more like day-to-day, -day, like a engineering benefit. So this is the same benefit we will have when we have disaggregated memory. So, and you could scale this differently from scaling compute servers. So if like next month you find that your data centers have need for more applications in your data centers, they have need for more memory. You just go purchase more memory and enlarge your memory pool. And then if next month you find you need more compute, you just buy more compute servers. And then because like when you're adding memory ser servers into your memory pool, we made it in a way that it's separated from the compute pool. So it's transparent and you can manage. Or you, let's say next month, you want to deploy a new service into the memory pool that is like key value store, um, memcached, you could just upgrade that, change the service without affecting the compute side. So that's the other nice thing about disaggregation. Got it. And what I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding is, again, this is providing some modularity to the data center operator. And from the average user, like the application developer, the average application developer is not thinking you know, can I get a new hardware component to get better memory allocation? They're thinking, can I just, can I get a better memory allocation? They're thinking from the application point of view, the data center operator has, has different concerns than the uh, application operator. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand, you know, what is in it for the data center operator or and, and what is in it for the application developer or who does the disaggregation the the server disaggregation serve most beneficially that's a good question so i think it's it's like a combination of all and some of the benefit is indirect so i would say the direct benefit to data center providers is cost saving to data center operators, it's more manageability. And then the direct benefit to users is that they don't need to manage service. They don't need to know how much memory they need to allocate. Like when you're like, like requiring, like uh, configuring a new instance, you need to know like how much memory your application would need. And you need to set that ahead of time. And that's usually set by the IT department of your company that's using the cloud. And usually you don't set it a perfect way because you don't know like at runtime what would be used. So in our vision, we don't need this like scope of setting, presetting some 
fixed amount of resource. It is allocated as the application goes. So you are, you are paying for exactly what you are using instead of paying for, let's say, a fixed uh, 16 GB of memory. If your application is using like 2 GB at this time, 3 GB at another time, that's exactly what the data centers would allocate for you. And that's what exactly you will be paying for. So mm. that's the direct benefit mm. to cloud users. And the indirect benefit would be if the cloud providers, they could, uh, as a whole, they could save their whole data centers running cost, then they can, they can offer a bad, better price to the users. Okay, so you're saying that the disaggregation would just lead to better allocation. It, w- it would lead to more accurate allocation rather than over-allocation. Yeah, yes. Okay. So you work on Lego OS, and in a typical operating system, you have CPU and memory bundled together. And the premise of Lego OS is that if you disaggregate the hardware, you need a new kind of operating system. And that's one that you're building. So why couldn't you just have a traditional operating system work in a disaggregated hardware setting? Why do we need a new kind of operating system? So our first is you could always like change existing one into something that you you want, but the change in this case would be very significant. You better as well just build a new one. And the reason for that is like all the uh, traditional OSs, they assume I have local access to all the resource that I need. Like when you're allocating memory, the allocation is local. You don't go across network. And that's something that's handled by current OS and similarly to other things. But now if we have memory that's across network and who manages that memory. So if you still want to manage that memory, like virtualize, like translating physical memory into virtual memory, providing address space, all these functionalities, if you still want to manage that with a traditional OS, it's like you need basically to rewrite the whole virtual memory system. And because now your memory, physical memory scatters across multiple components over the network. And now you want to build a virtual memory address space out of this. Like no existing OS actually does that. And that's just one example. And there are many cases like your process can run, can be running on different processes. And how does a traditional traditional OS, it only manages a single processor. So that's why it becomes both like distributed in the same layer, like the CPU layer, processing layer, compute layer, you are distributing that, memory layer distributing that. You are also distributing, like disaggregating your, the memory layer from the compute layer. And if we are doing all that, like you need to also distribute the software, which is the OS. Can you tell me more about the main design principles of Lego OS? So the main design principle is we manage the hardware at where the hardware is. So we manage memory at the memory device. We don't manage memory. We don't run the memory management software at the CPU. So that's the traditional way, right? So like all the whole OS runs in CPU, it manages memory, it manages uh, CPU, it manages storage. So what we are saying is the management of the device should be local with the device. So if we want to manage memory, 
the management software should run at that memory device. If you're managing storage, that management software, which is the file system, should run at a storage device. So that's one principle. The other principle is to have a distributed view of the operating system. So to have building support for network communication, to have building support for failure handling. So these are the two major design principles. At the first principle, why we think that is possible to manage things local with the device is that if you look at devices today, they are becoming uh, what people call smarter. So you have smart SSDs and smart NICs. So that means the device, it has some processing power internally. So some small controller that can run some, some operations. So that means it is possible to run a piece of the OS functionality at the device, at the smart devices. And that's what made the first principle actually feasible. The Lego OS has a split kernel architecture. Can, can you explain what a split kernel architecture is? That's basically just what, what, what I just described. So you're splitting OS functionality into different pieces. You run each piece local at the device. And then the whole thing is a distributed system. Is there any difficulty in deciding what components of a kernel to to split up and assign to different devices? Like, aren't there, isn't there like overlapping functionality across the kernel that you might need to run on each of those devices? That's an excellent question. So if you look at today's Linux like everything is sort of combined, even though Linux has a lot of module, modularized a lot of things, but fundamentally the design principle is a lot of things are like intertwined. And for example, like in Linux, like we usually say that everything is just a file handler. And like, this is like the network, when you open the network connection, you get a file, like a handler descriptor back. And that part is like, mingled with uh, with the like another layer so but if you look at if you throw away what existing os's they are doing if you just think uh, think about the original purpose of an os that the original purpose of an os is to manage hardware and virtualize them and if you think that and now you think the new hardware architecture which is separated you just think about i want to now manage memory so what do I need to manage memory and what do I need to virtualize memory? And that's the part I run at memory. So if you come from that point of view, then you get a design that could be cleanly separated. Got it. And the architecture has something called a vNode. What is a vNode? So that's basically like an abstraction that we provide to users that is more like a, just like a container or a virtual machine. So we want to hide the physical disaggregation nature from the users so that we could continue run existing applications without asking them to change their source code or even to recompile. So the level as currently, it could run unmodified Linux binary. And Linux binary, it was assuming that like everything is in the monolithic service. So the virtual node is like a virtual concept that we create, much like a virtual machine or a container to users. And they could basically just like 
getting a V node, and then underlying. So the V node would run their application binaries, and then underlying the binary, like the memory, could be on different memory devices, and the um, like the threads they could also run on different processes. So, programming an operating system, even by the traditional standards, is pretty challenging. If I'm creating a monolithic operating system, that's just not an easy thing to do. And you're designing and programming a completely new type of operating system. What is the biggest challenge that you faced in implementing this thing from the software and hardware side? Yeah, so that's very interesting. So like, in the beginning, we just thought, oh, this is like a really cool idea. It fits all the hardware trends, application trends, we should do it. And then we just started, and we looked at, we did first look at existing OSs and think if it's easier to change them. But then we found it's better to just start from, from, from scratch and build a new operating system. And surprisingly, the biggest challenge, at least the ones that we didn't expect, are building drivers and supporting unmodified Linux ABIs. So building drivers, it, because this is traditionally done by the uh, device builders, and we have to now build our own drivers. So what we did is we actually ported like only limited amount of drivers from Linux, but we envision if someone is going to build this, they would like different devices providers, they would just build their own uh, drivers. The other thing is our goal, and this goal may be too aggressive. So we want to run unmodified Linux binaries. So no, no not even need, uh, need to recompile. So for that, we have to follow exactly the Linux system call interfaces, like all the way to like a parameter, a return value. So that actually took a lot of time, and especially because our underlying like layer is completely different from Linux. So we actually added like a thin layer on top of Lego OS to basically translate Linux syscalls into our system calls. And that actually ended up taking quite a lot of time. Wow. So you built a full syscall translation interface. That's what you're saying. It's not full. So by the time when, when we actually published, we, I think we supported 130 some common system call. So, so uh, common system calls, not like a complete system mm-hmm. call interface. Yeah, but we were able to run TensorFlow and some other complex application without any modification of their binaries. So let's talk about that, like TensorFlow, for example. If you are running TensorFlow across disaggregated hardware, what are the different hardware components that the TensorFlow runtime is going to be spread across? And, and what do those interfaces look like at those different hardware facets? Like this is actually the underlying disaggregate nature and what devices the TensorFlow application is running on is actually hidden from the TensorFlow application. So to them, they are just running like a normal TensorFlow program. But underlying, the main thing is we are disaggregating its memory. And the nice thing that fits our model is TensorFlow's like computation and memory access pattern. So it actually fetches what is called a mini batch and then uh, fetches it from like slower storage or memory. 
And then after it fetches it, we'll do like a, a lot of computation on that MIDI batch. So our model is that our processor side, it still has some like small memory. And we, in the level OS project, we actually configure that small memory as another level of cache. So it would, the best like application model that could fit this, this architecture is applications that behave locality access, memory access locality. So TensorFlow is one of them because it's like the locality is found in this mini batch. And, and that's like, but this is all hidden from, from the application and the application, they would just load it. And naturally what you load is the mini batch and that would lo run in the extra level of cache in the processor. Okay. And can you tell me more about what you learned when you were running TensorFlow across your disaggregated hardware? Yeah. So one thing is this mini batch really helped us. This program behavior, TensorFlow program behavior of mini batch. So if the mini batch is too big, then what your processor can fit, then it needs to make more network round trips to the memory. So that's the first thing. And then in general, when we're evaluating, something surprising to us is the network was not the bottleneck. The bottleneck was our memory, memory's implementation. So when we build Lego OS, we didn't really have real hardware disaggregated memory devices or disaggregated uh, storage devices. So we were just using CPU cores on the normal server as if they are the memory device. And then the memory device it needs to process requests that are coming from a lot of processors through the network. So originally we thought network would be the bottleneck, but network was not the bottleneck. It's the processing at the memory side. So memory side, you need to handle a lot of concurrent accesses coming from the network. Network could be 100 dbps. And then basically just like polling your network card and, and get these, device, uh, these requests and just translating them from virtual to physical memory. You don't, it cannot just by using like a general purpose CPU, you cannot keep up with the um, network speed and that eventually limit application performance. And that's why we uh, started the real hardware project that we are currently close to finishing and that would use another hardware that is not CPU that is cheaper than CPU, but actually uh, scales better and that could sustain this very high network um, line rate. I see, so you, you're gonna define, you're gonna build specific hardware for the, to replace the CPU in this disaggregated setup? So the CPU is still CPU. So the compute side, compute side could be CPU-based processors. It could be GPU. It could be TPU. That's the compute side. So what I was talking about is the memory side. So the memory side, I talked about you want to run some management of the memory local at the memory device. So if you're using a CPU to run those memory management software, even though you think that's something that's simple to do, just using a CPU and a limited number of cores, you are not going to keep up with the high network line rate. So memory bandwidth is fast. Network is, could be as fast as 100 Gbps already. The bottleneck is your management software of the memory and you don't want to run that in CPU. That's too costly and that's not going to scale. So that's the part that we are rebuilding. 
Okay. I want to talk, I mean, there's so much in your research that would be interesting to discuss. And I just want to jump to a different topic, which is machine learning to help build operating systems. Can you talk about this in some detail? How could machine learning be used to improve the development of an operating system? So this is a, like a new direction that we recently started. Um, the If you look at OS building, it's a lot of just like human factors in it. So, and a lot of heuristics. And you are deciding this before you know the applications and applications, they can change very rapidly these days. But once you decide, let's say a CPU scheduling policy, a memory replacement policy, you build that into your OS, it's very difficult and it's rarely changed, although you have different applications running on them. And when you're designing these policies, you don't really know what is the best and you can only come from a heuristic point of view and it's just like human factor in this. So that's one case where, um, and traditionally that there's not, not so much need because your application doesn't change that often and you don't really, uh, you just build a general purpose OS and that's good enough for most applications. But now if you really want to build better OSs for these new type of applications and to meet the like speed of how applications develop, you want to think of a way that like leaves the human factor out and could automatically change or adapt your OS for different applications. That is that is one of the motivation. And then the other thing is like after you build an OS, if you're running Linux, you have to configure a lot of things. And this configuration is just like another human factor. And you uh, like oftentimes you would have some configuration uh, problems and you need to go back and all this and that. So that's very complex. And you don't want to, like it's, it's, it would be better for machines to do that. And finally, it's just like, it does take time to write OS components. But if you could have a way to automatically generate these components, then that's another way of saving human time and using machine to do that. So that was the original like big vision that we have. And are there some specific decisions that could in an operating system that could be improved by machine learning? Like I think about scheduling, for example. Are there specific areas of operating systems that you think could be improved by machine learning? So there are many places like this that could be improved, like scheduling decisions. Like instead of one scheduling decision, if you can learn like the behavior of programs that are currently running on this specific server and your OS basically just adapt to that, adapt the CPU scheduling policy to that application, type of application that is running on this server and another server is running another application. You don't need to change the OS, but the machine, if it's a model, then it could learn and adapt the scheduling decision. And similarly, if you want to do like memory allocation or memory replacement, uh, file system, uh, disk allocation, a lot of these decision-making, you could like, if you use a machine to do that, it could be done more like fit your application more. But the biggest challenge of using machine learning for OS versus like use machine learning for other domains is that first OS needs to run very fast. And second, OS needs to be always correct. And third, 
well, you need like for all the machine learning, you need to collect data. You have you need to collect data so that you can learn. So these are the three main issues, like challenges that we will face when we use machine learning to build OS. Like machine learning, there traditionally like OS, we sacrifice a lot of like accuracy. Basically, you don't go for like a perfect memory replacement policy. You go for like approximate so that it can run very fast. And now machine learning, if you want to run machine learning, it, it cannot be as fast. First is like, if you want to run that in GPU, you have to cross the bus from CPU to GPU. And also like, if you want to run CPU, then there's some, some like, it won't be run as fast. So there are many like detailed issues like this. And the other thing is like, OS cannot be wrong. So if you're accessing memory and you, if you are using a machine learning model to say, I have a model, I predict, that this virtual memory address should map to this physical memory address. And I have like 90% confidence, but like you cannot access a wrong memory address. So OS is like absolute correct, but machine learning is like statistical by nature. So how do you solve that problem? You almost like have to have like a failover mechanism to deal with the, like the natural inaccuracy mm. in all the machine learning models. Mm. And if you want to like, collect the trace that data set that you want to learn like memory access pattern storage access pattern like cpu like access pattern then you need to find a very efficient way to do that at runtime because at runtime we don't want to add any more overhead and also you need to think about where to store them so there are all these like major challenges that still need to be solved okay Ying. well it's been really Fun talking to you, and I appreciate the depth and the breadth of the work that you're doing. So keep up the good work, and I look forward to seeing what else you come out with in the future. Thank you. This is fun. It's, okay. uh, it's very nice talking.